You're welcome to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. It's right there in the beginning of your pew Bible. There's 66 books in the Bible. This is the first one. And we're in chapter 12. Let me pray for us as we turn to the Lord's Word. Heavenly Father, we we thank you, Lord, that we have this opportunity. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we as human beings do not have the requisite knowledge to understand ourselves, our world, or you. So we come eager and we come humbly, Lord, asking that you now would instruct us and teach us by way of divine revelation, Lord, truths that we could not attain to of ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Two weeks ago, I mentioned how the lives of others through biographies have been a great encouragement to me. And sometimes these heroes we read about will even leave us a personal diary or a journal. And sometimes these personal diaries or journals will get published and we can read these. And if you've ever read someone's diary or journal, um, you know that, that what happens here that's somewhat different than a biography is it's, it's rawer. It's, there's less filter. It's a direct window onto the vicissitudes and ups and downs of a soul. Sometimes it can actually be frightening. I can still remember in, in seminary when I came upon the diary of David Brainerd. Brainerd was born in 1718, and he would be a missionary. And I had heard that his life had inspired countless other Christians, especially other Christian missionaries. And then I heard that his diary, which he kept, his personal journal, had actually been published. And you could read it. And so I checked it out of the library with some excitement. Um, But I was in for a sobering surprise. Some of the passages I read there shook me greatly. I was still very new in my faith and more naive than I realized. And I realized that the path of faith is not necessarily a straightforward road of spiritual ascent and enlightenment. But what I found with Brainerd, who had given his whole life to God, which was the very thing I was trying to do, what I found when I read his diary was that his life, by his own account, was so often filled with uncertainty and extreme hardship. So he writes on September 2nd, 1746, was scarce ever more confounded with a sense of my own unfruitfulness and unfitness of my work than now. Oh, what a dead, heartless, barren, unprofitable wretch did I now see myself to be. My spirits were so low and my bodily strength so wasted that I could do nothing at all. In another entry, he describes the circumstances of his first mission station where he was trying to share about Jesus with the Housatonic tribe. He writes, I live poorly with regard to the comforts of life I lodge on a bundle of straw, and my labor is hard and extremely difficult. 
and I have little experience of success or comfort. Then after just four years of his work, Brainerd developed tuberculosis, and he rode on his horse into Northampton, and he found the house of the pastor who lived there. That pastor happened to be Jonathan Edwards, and he stayed in Edwards' house for several weeks until he died. He was just 29 years old. Now, I knew Brainerd's life had left a legacy with an incalculable impact on the modern Christianary movement. And I figured that it was probably helpful because in his life you had this paradigm where people could see that God works through people even when they feel weak and broken. But I was new in my faith and my heart recoiled from this truth I was beginning to see dawning. The path of faith, though filled with meaning, and shot through with a very unique type of joy, was not at all a path leading away from trials. More often, it was a path that led straight into them. Now, I might have been less surprised by this if I had better understood the life of Abraham. As far as we can tell, Abraham didn't keep a diary. Moses wrote down his biography, Genesis 12 through 25. We don't know that he had a journal. We certainly haven't found it. But if he had kept a diary, I can't help but imagine that there would have been passages that read similarly. Imagine he writes one night. Today marks 10 years since Sarah and I left everything and set out for God's promises. Here we are. We own not even an acre of this land. We are surrounded by Canaanites and still no child. I grow older and Sarai is far beyond the days of conceiving. I am so discouraged and afraid. Or on another night, it is God who led me into this land. But tonight several tribal kings are arrayed against me. They've taken my nephew Lot. Lord, I took Lot to protect him. And now it is Lot that is lulling me into a war. Tomorrow they will likely kill me and then him. Or on another night, he writes, The Lord has shared with me his plans. He's going to execute a great judgment on the cities of Gomorrah and Sodom. I've asked him, To be merciful, if even a few faithful people are found. Oh, how can I understand this God, who is at once both overflowing with mercy and yet burns with such holy righteousness? I am so overwhelmed. More often than not, Abraham, the man of faith, did not understand God's ways nor God's timing. And Abraham, the mere mortal that he is, could never fully comprehend this, uh, comprehend this unfathomable God he had set out to follow. So Abraham's life, it had to be conducted according to this singularly important spiritual muscle, faith. Faith is not a quaint idea for those people who become religious and want to go off and study theology. 
Faith is the very thing one lives by when they're called to follow God. Faith is to the spiritual life what the heart is to the physical life. It is that organ that sits behind all the other workings of the spiritual person. Prayer, obedience, generosity, works of justice, hope, love. These Christian virtues can only exist if the organ of faith is operating behind them, beneath them, pumping trust and belief into the rest of the body. So what kind of faith do you have? Do you know how to live by faith? Or do you just try to reason yourself out of every situation? Do you know how important faith is for your eternal well-being? Do you know how you would get faith? Do you know what it would be like if you had it? Do you know what it would feel like? Do you know that you can develop your faith, that it can grow? It can grow stronger, it can grow weaker. It's with these questions that we have to turn to Abraham today. Because Abraham is known, if by nothing else, he is known as the man of faith. Paul says in Romans 4 that we must learn to walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. So we've seen so far the calling of Abraham. We've seen the commissioning of Abraham. And today we have to look at his response. We have to understand what it means that he set out on a life of faith. And I'll look at, I'll look at some passages, mainly Genesis 12, and we'll see three things that I hope will be helpful for you about the nature of biblical faith. First, it involves a breaking down. Second, it involves a building up. And third, it must have an altar. A breaking down, a building up, and an altar. So first, faith means something must come crashing down. Genesis 12.1. In this um, verse, God lays out very specifically what the first step of faith is going to require for Abraham. And ironically, although the command is go, to go he has to leave. Going requires leaving. Beginning requires ending. You'll see this. So notice what God says. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Genesis 12 verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Notice the threefold emphasis. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house. Something must end for Abraham. He has to leave something. Now to leave one's family in the ancient world was unthinkable. However hard you think it would be for you to do this, it was harder for Abraham. It was to cut ties with all that was familiar and safe. So bound up in what God is asking of Abraham in this departure is that Abraham must see an entire way of life broken down that he walks away from. Now coming from the area of Babylon, Abraham's country and kin would have represented traditions. Um, they would have represented forms of meaning and belief that would have given his life purpose and coherence. There was a language people spoke. 
There were customs his family kept. There was a religious system replete with temples and priests, oracles and omens. Abraham's culture would have shaped his entire inner life, how he thought, what he valued, how he prayed, how he hoped. Now, in order to follow God and God's calling for Abraham, I was going to see in the middle of the sermon, it involves a building up of a new life of faith. But for that to happen, a former way of life, a former faith must be broken down. Now, let's just pause here. I think there's a few very practical, though challenging insights to draw from verse 1. First, I want you to notice that Abraham is not really beginning to live by faith when God calls him. He's already got a faith. He believes in stuff. What's happening is a change of faith. And this is worth thinking about because it reminds us that the Bible doesn't divide the world between people who live by reason and people who live by faith. The Bible knows that nobody walks through life basing how they live on math and science only. You can't do it. There are simply too many questions about the meaning of life that science and math, as wonderful as these things are, simply can't answer. If you're going to have a life of meaning and coherence, you're going to simply need more than empirical data. So, for example, just give you one example. Popular views today, I would say the most popular view today, um, one of the most popular views in the world, or at least in the Western world, is the dignity of all human beings. We're all equal. And from this truth comes our views of justice and equality. Everybody thinks this is true. Now, the Bible teaches it is true. It's simply the case, though, that you can't derive this truth simply by looking at evolutionary determinism. It would actually teach you just the opposite. You can't derive this from the Big Bang Theory. These are beliefs. Most people hold them because of sentimentality, but they're beliefs. Tolstoy, during his midlife crisis of profound soul-searching, when he wrote his confessions, he wrote that it is impossible for there to be a person with no religion as it is for there to be a person without a heart. He may not know that he has a religion, just as a person may not know that he has a heart, but it is no more possible for a person to exist without a religion, without faith, than without a heart. That's just the first thing to recognize. We're not some weird Christian people who live a life of faith and everybody else is walking around basing their life on reason. Everybody is living based on certain beliefs that they cannot empirically prove. Abraham is experiencing a change of faith, but he's not going from reason to faith. Although his faith involves reason, of course. The second insight, I think, from verse 1 that is worth pondering is that if biblical faith requires the breaking down of one formerly held faith system that's deeply built into our lives, then we ought to be cautious that we're not walking around with a hybrid faith. I think there could have been times when Abraham was well into his faith journey with God when he realized that he still had a lot of Babylon left in him. He may have been tempted to look up at the stars sometimes and count them and look for oracles. Maybe he found himself at night when he was afraid, thinking back to an old promise that some oracle had spoken over his family, saying, can I just cling to this tonight? I'm so lonely. And I worry that many Christians today may be living 
based on a hybrid faith. It took me a while to realize what mine was. My hybrid faith was half Christianity, half American dream. With Christianity, I get heaven. American dream, I get a great life now. And that's just what I kind of assumed. I mean, that's how it's going to work, right? I mean, why wouldn't God give me prosperity right now? It's just that when you look at the New Testament, you can't get the American dream out of it. Or your hybrid faith might be half Jesus, half America, or whatever country that you're building your life around. It's not bad to be patriotic. It's just not, that's not what biblical faith derives from. Or your hybrid faith, it might be half gospel, half self-helpism. Whatever it is, I think verse 1 of Genesis 12 says we all need to hear God say, Bob, Sarah, Sam, leave your kindred, your family, your country, all the systems that were holding your life together, all the ways you were hoping and thinking and praying. you got to walk away from it. I'm bringing it down. And it's only in doing this that I can build something new. That's the first thing we see. Biblical faith begins with the breaking down. So here Abraham is in verse 1, stripped down to the studs. But it's not to destroy him. It's to rebuild the man to a far more beautiful structure. So second, I want you to notice that biblical faith involves a building up. And we see this process of building up all across Abraham's life. But we can start to notice what it involves, what it involves in verses 4 through 9 when Abraham responds. So in verse 4, it just says, and Abraham went. I love that, the brevity of it. He just went. you got to love the guy. He just goes. It says, Abraham went as the Lord has told him. And then through, rolling down the verse 9, he journeys through all of the, what will become known as the promised land from north to south and, and what I want you to notice in this little word went is that it doesn't say that and Abraham stopped to think. And Abraham went away and got a master's in theology. It says he went. And this tells us faith is not less than using your mind. But in the Bible, there is this element where, where faith is formed and realized only in going, in living. And then it's in this life that unfolds for Abraham that you begin to see his faith develop and built. Uh, Bruce Walkie, who's um, one of my favorite commentators, has a great commentary on Genesis. If you buy one commentary on Genesis, just get the Bruce Walkie one. And he, he refers to Abraham in the school of faith. And I like that image. And he says that the plot of Genesis 12 through 25 is driven by Abraham's struggle to trust God in the face of a series of, conflict, of conflicts testing his faith. So consider some of the tests of faith Abraham will endure. He must trust in God's promise of descendants despite childlessness. He must trust that God will take care of him despite a severe famine. Genesis 12 verses 10 and 11. A severe famine. That happens as soon as he gets into this promised land. He must trust as a sojourner in a hostile land. Verse 7, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. That's not a throwaway verse. 
He must trust in the face of conflict with his nephew Lot. You see this in Genesis 13. The two have a falling out. He must trust as he needs to go to war with foreign kings because they've captured his nephew Lot. That's Genesis 14. And most acutely, in Genesis 22, he must trust God when he's asked to sacrifice his son. So, Abraham's life, as Bruce Walkie says, is a school of faith. And Walkie actually says, and I think this is interesting, he imagines stages. There's, there's the elementary stage, the college stage, and the graduate stage of faith. And, and what, what, he, what he draws out of this is he says that, look, there's an elementary stage of faith, and maybe you're in this stage, and that stage is Abraham in verse 1, where it's simply, okay, I'm open to you being God. I'm open to the idea of God, okay? I, 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 will, I will open up and start listening. That's the elementary stage. The college stage, though, is when you go to say, okay, I actually will start living according to this God. I'll start acting in such a way that is in accord with God's Word. And in this stage, you actually face some trials. You're like, well, i got to get up on, early on Sunday and go to church. Man, this is tough. i got to stop cussing. You, know, you start doing things, and you're like, well, this is, this is kind of hard. But, but nothing is hard in a way that you can't rationally understand. Right? You, still, you still can kind of, well, God's probably leading me in this direction. It's hard, but I can see why he's doing this. And then comes graduate school, where God calls you to some form of radical obedience that utterly explodes the categories of reason. This is when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. No amount of reason, no amount of words from friends could ever make sense of why God is requiring this of you. And all you have is him. You can no longer trust on your own algorithms about how this will work out. Oh, I can see I lost that money because God wants to do this, but I'll earn it back. It's gone. You have to entirely live upon him. And between Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, Abraham's faith does not develop in a straight line. It's up and down. But he clearly is at a different place when he's able to entrust Isaac to a God who will raise the dead, it says in Hebrews 11. Whereas in Genesis 12, he was barely able to be honest about his wife. So, Again, let's pause here at the building up of faith, and perhaps there's a few practical things for us. What do we learn from this? Well, the first thing is that faith really develops by doing, not just thinking. It's not that you shouldn't think about Christianity. You shouldn't ponder these eyewitnesses that Luke so carefully records that give us these testimonies about the resurrection. You should think about this stuff. But at some point, you're just not going to understand Christianity until you dive in. So you start doing. You, know, you might think about it like, think of a really skeptical person by nature who's really skeptical about the laws of aerodynamics. They've never seen a plane, they've never been on one, they're like, I just totally don't believe that. It's ridiculous, piece of metal up in the air, foolish. So you bring the person onto a plane and you sit there and you try to explain, look at the wings, man, I'm telling you, these work. Don't believe it. And then you say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to get up there in the pilot seat, we're going to take off. And you're in the air then, and you come back to the person, and you're like, this is the laws of aerodynamics. And I know you still can't understand them, but this is them working. And so sometimes we need to step out and start following God, praying to God, communing with God's people, trusting God, before we can ever see that he's actually trustworthy. 
He won't prove himself to you in a book, but he will if you set your life, you stake your life on him. So that's the first thing. Faith develops not just by thinking, by doing. I think the second practical thing for us is that from Abraham's life, we can see that as faith is built, it's going to involve as much as the head. It's going to involve as much of the head as it does the heart. Of course, there's things Abraham will have to learn about who Yahweh is along the way, who God is, what it means for ethics. Eventually, Moses will have to learn how you structure a people around believing in the one true God. But the real tests that come to Abraham, they're not intellectual. It's not like someone comes with a quiz about the Trinity halfway through his life. His real, his real challenges probably have a lot more to do with his moods. C.S. Lewis um, captures this so well in Mere Christianity. He writes, Supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of evidence is for Christianity, I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when there is bad news, or he is in trouble, or is living among a lot of other people who do not believe it. And all at once, his emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief. I'm not talking of moments at which any real new reasons against Christianity turn up. I'm talking about moments when a mere mood rises up against it. Against it. And Lewis concludes, this is such a great sentence. Lewis says, faith is the art of holding on to the things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Maybe you can relate to that. Abraham had to ride out the ups and downs of his moods. And he had to hold things, hold on to God in something that transcended his mere feelings. That's a very important lesson for us. Another insight from the building up of faith would be just to point out that faith, like a muscle, develops against the pressure of testing and time. And so Abraham's faith changes between chapter 12 and chapter 22 because he doesn't live in the prosperity gospel and because he doesn't live in a vacuum. One commentator writes, the universe might be made in seven days, but anything in the human world that involves profound change takes time. The biblical drama is set in the arena of time. Faith is the ability to live with delay without losing trust, to experience disappointment without losing hope, to know that the road between the real and the ideal is long and yet will be willing to undertake the journey. Faith is like a craft you learn. It's like a muscle we develop. And this only happens against the resistance of time and testing. You know, I was thinking earlier this morning what it would be like if we could, if we could run our church through a, spirit, uh, a spiritual x-ray machine. And I could see your spiritual wounds. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, like, you know, who would have the worst one? Maybe you're thinking, it would be me. If you could see. If you could see into my soul right now, you, you would, it's a broken fibia, compound fracture. And this is always the reality on Sunday morning. And I think I, I would say to you, there's probably a lot going on in the circumstances of your life that only God understands, and he does understand. But at the very least, I know this, that you are given an opportunity, like Abraham would have, 
been at different times, to exercise a trust in God that is a beautiful thing, to hope against hope, to go on believing even though it's this hard. This is the arena, the arena you're in, where faith can actually grow deep and meaningful. Angels don't get to develop in this way. They can see everything, but humans do. So realize you may be in a hard but very, very precious moment. So what have we said so far? Biblical faith requires a breaking down, acknowledging we have a faith system in something, and then a building up, and that happens over time. It happens in circumstances. And I just want to end with with just a third um, insight from this passage that I think is really profound, and that's that faith also, biblical faith, needs to have an altar. Um, I find it both profound and quite moving that prior to possessing even an acre of the promised land, Abraham builds altars there. I mean, it'd be like a guy at a national park who goes to one of those rest stops and he doesn't own anything, but he decides to start a church there. He just sets it up. Yeah, we're going to worship. I don't care. I don't own it. We're doing it right here. And it says, if you, if you pick up, that, that he does this within sight of Canaanite religious places. So let me just read this. Verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. This would have been a Canaanite cult center. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Again, he journeys a little further south to the hill country of Bethel. By the way, he's hugging the hill country because in the valley, the good farmland would have been the Canaanites. So he's staying off to the side to avoid a skirmish. Then we read in verse 8, there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Let us picture Abraham now. He is a lonely man in a foreign land. He's surrounded by people that neither speak his language or know his God. There's a severe famine that will come in verse 10. He goes on to use his wife as a pawn for protection. And there are times in the ensuing chapters when he will directly question God. There is fear within and fear without. And there are so many good reasons for Abraham to doubt. And yet it is here, in the midst of this valley, that Abraham starts to pick up little rocks. And he assembles them, these stones, into a makeshift altar. Even while he's looking over at the Canaanite religious site, he's saying, no, I made a promise to God. I won't worship the false idol. And he makes himself a little altar that no one's knelt at before, right by the Canaanite shrine. And he kneels down, and in defiance, against both the Canaanite religion and defiance against his own doubts, it says in verse 8, Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. I wonder what it sounded like. Elohim, El, God, God Almighty, El Shaddai, help me, help me, God. And there he knelt with his little hands folded, feeling the weight of Sarai, and the family, the caravan he had brought with him. And in this act at this altar, the Bible gives us a window into the real fulcrum of biblical faith, and it's this. In this posture of crying out to the Lord, Abraham reminds us 
that biblical faith is a relationship. It's not faith in a philosophy. It's not faith in a constitution. It's not faith in a people group. It's faith in a living God. God refers to this as a covenant soon in Abraham's life. And sometimes the covenant is likened to a marriage. So what's happening is Abraham is taking the little mustard seed of faith that he has and he's essentially crying out to God and saying, look, my faith ultimately rests in your faithfulness to me. Your faithfulness to me is ultimately all I have to go on. And we will see as the story of Abraham's people unfolds, that God will go to such a length to keep his faithfulness to his people, even when they're unfaithful, that he will send his only begotten son to take all the unfaithfulness of this people on himself and be crucified in their place because God will not break his covenant with Abraham. He cannot. It is against his nature. And so, this faith, this is the last thing we close, it upholds Abraham all the way up to the point of death. You see, Abraham doesn't realize most of his promises. Some, his offspring, Isaac, but most of them he doesn't realize in his life. They're actually for his offspring. And when Abraham and Sarai die, you know the only part of the promised land they possess is their tomb. It's really dear. They just have this little plot of land they bought for their grave. That's all he has. He's lying there. He lays there. This is it. The promised land is his own grave. And yet he's hoping in a God who will keep his promises even past death. So too with David Brainerd. We'll close with Brainerd again. Brainerd died owning nothing of this world. He had no possessions. His life is only marked by a gravestone in Northampton, Massachusetts. It's a dark slab now, well-worn, and it reads, Sacred to the memory of the Reverend David Brainerd, a faithful and laborious missionary to the Stockbridge, Delaware, and Susquehanna tribes of Indians who died in this town October 10th, 1747. His last words written in his journal were these, My soul was this day, at turns, sweetly set on God. I longed to be with Him, that I might behold His glory. I felt sweetly disposed to commit all to Him, even my dearest friends, my dearest flock, my absent brother, and all my concerns for time and eternity. Oh, that His kingdom might come in the world, that they might all love and glorify Him for what He is in himself, and that that blessed Redeemer might see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And then he died. Faith is that silver tether tying our hearts to God, whereby we believe, even up to our dying hour, that God keeps his promises, even his promise to keep us. Amen.